This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. For our final podcast episode of 2023, we're pleased to bring you a special edition of a program that the James Wilson Institute hosted in the fall of 2023, featuring Professor David Bernstein. Uh, David is a dear friend of mine and the Institute's, and we hosted the program with him as an opportunity for him to build on the uh, book that he wrote that was also the subject of a past podcast episode, Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. The book is near and dear to my heart because I served as a research assistant for David on uh, good parts of the book in the summer of 2020. The book was released in 2022 and only grew in prominence since because of how the issue of how the government treats racial categories under the law um, has been at the forefront of much of our public discourse. Um, specifically around the Supreme Court's uh, decision in the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard case. And so uh, this was a delightful opportunity to be able to revisit uh, the book with David, um, but also hear his thoughts on the uh, court's decision in Students for Fair Admission and just what's likely to happen next. Uh, A brief biography uh, of David, he holds a university professorship chair at the Antonin Scalia Law School, where he's been teaching since 1995. Um, He's written numerous books and dozens of law review articles and essays, uh, and uh, he's just someone that uh, is a real treat to listen to. And uh, for our longtime listeners, um, you'll be uh, be hearing uh, from him and from me um, on this episode. Uh, which you'll definitely hear echoes of our po- pa- of our past um, podcast episode. Uh, but for new new listeners, I think you're in for a treat um, uh, hearing insights and wisdom from David. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, I certainly hope I'll be uh, coherent anyway. Um, Okay, so affirmative action, racial preferences, and higher education have been hanging by a legal thread ever since the first case came to the Supreme Court, the the, uh, the Funes case in 1973, where the Supreme Court decided, we're not really ready to hear this, so they abandoned it. Uh, but then we had the Bakke case in 1978, where the Supreme Court uh, put some limits on racial classification use in higher education, but said you could still use it for diversity points of for diversity uh, in your class. Uh, Thereafter, the Supreme Court has heard a few more cases, and uh, until this past year, they put increasingly strict limits on when and how you could use race in admissions. And we had this like sort of interesting little dance between the court and universities, where the court would say, you're only allowed to use racial classification and preferences in these narrow circumstances. The universities would pretend they were abiding by it, and then the Supreme Court would pretend not to notice that they were really using soft racial and ethnic quotas instead, even though it was pretty obvious if you read the statistics from their admissions offices. This cozy status quo was finally disrupted this past June when uh, the lawsuit filed by Students for Fair Admissions against two universities, the University of North Carolina and Harvard University, was decided by the Supreme Court. Uh, The case against the University of North Carolina was filed under the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause since they're a state university. The case against Harvard was only under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act because they're not a public university. But the Supreme Court has in the past held that the standard of review for uh, racial classification is exactly the same under the 64 Civil Rights Act and the uh, the 14th Amendment. So the two cases had exactly the same legal issues presented. Now, the status of the case was when they got to the Supreme Court was that Harvard and UNC had pretty much 
uh, done what all universities in the United States were doing, which is taking the position in practice, if not in theory, that they could do whatever they want so long as they don't officially use racial and ethnic quotas. Indeed, uh, by the time the litigation came to the Supreme, came to the courts in, uh, about ten, less than 10 years ago, the Supreme Court had made it clear both in Grutter versus the University of Michigan in 2003 and Fisher versus University of Texas in 2013 that they, the universities, before they could use race, really had to show that they had looked to other means of increasing racial ethnic diversity that did not involve classifying anyone by race. And like I said, like all of the universities, they never actually did anything like that. Uh, when Harvard came before the Supreme Court, they sort of had to acknowledge at that point, yes, we could have gotten rid of legacy preferences, we could have gotten preferences for certain athletic uh, groups that for sports that are mostly played in elite prep schools like sailing or polo or, uh, or lacrosse or whatnot, uh, and we could have gotten rid of certain other things, but you know what, we're Harvard. Why should we have to do that? These are our institutional prerogatives. Now, uh, that might have gone over well, or at least well enough with the Supreme Court at one time, but I think two things have intervened, one uh, of, of which is that the court is uh, generally more conservative than it had been, but also I think that conservatives, even though the justices, except for Justice Barrett, all went to Harvard or Yale themselves, have just grown very impatient with these universities more generally, right? It's, it's kind of chutzpah, to use a French word, uh, <laughs> uh, to, to come to the Supreme Court and say, well, you know, we have to have viewpoint diversity, and, do, and to do that, we need to have you know, racial and ethnic diversity when you know that Harvard, for example, is number 228 out of 228 on fires free speech uh, rankings and all these stories coming out of Stanford and Yale and all that about uh, the school suppressing speech. So I don't think it was any surprise that the court wound up ruling against both Harvard and UNC in a six to three decision. And much of the majority opinion went exactly as you'd expect. First, Roberts contended that racial preferences are illegal racial reverse discrimination. He says college admissions are a zero sum game. If you're preferring some groups of students, that means that other groups of students have less of a chance of getting in. And he said to say that you're allowed to do that uh, would turn the Equal Protection Clause on its head. But there are some novel aspects to the Students with Fair Admissions case. I'll, I'll go through three of them uh, briefly. Uh, one of them is that while the majority has long purported, at least some justices in the, in the conservative majority have long purported to be originalist, there hadn't been a lengthy discussion of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment in any of the previous affirmative action cases, but Justice Clarence Thomas uh, did provide one, uh, had a lengthy dis dis discussion uh, back, and uh, back and forth, shall we say, uh, with Justice Sotomayor on that issue. Um, I'm not going to talk about the original meaning of the Equal Protection Clause, because that's not my particular expertise, but that was sort of novel that this got so much attention. A second novelty is that affirmative action cases have only, almost always come to the Supreme Court in the past uh, being portrayed by the media by the litigants as being you know, sort of whites versus African Americans. The original purpose of these programs was indeed to bring African Americans into the educational mainstream after years of exclusion, but uh, as the country has gotten more and more diverse, that's become less and less what's going on, and in the Harvard case in particular, the plaintiffs presented some pretty persuasive evidence that Harvard was intentionally discriminating against Asian American students. Uh, I'll just recount two of those very quickly, one of which was that Harvard's entering class in 1990 was 20% Asian. In 2014, when the litigation commenced, it was 21%, even though the population of Asian Americans had more or less doubled in that period of time, maybe more importantly, the number of Asian Americans who were native-born Americans, fluent, more, therefore more fluent English, therefore more likely to be able to get uh, into somewhere like Harvard had really uh, increased dramatically. The other piece of evidence was that Asian American students were given much lower personality ratings than any of the other groups. And you might say, well, maybe you know, something in Asian American culture where uh, 
they're less uh, um, gregarious or whatever, they don't come across as well as interviews. But here's the, but even if you were might have believed that, the problem is that when alumni interviews interviewed Asian American applicants, they got exactly the same scores as the other groups. It's only when the admissions staff at Harvard was doing the interview where they know we don't want as many Asians that somehow Asians certainly lack personality. So um, Justice Thomas discussed this particular issue also in some detail. Justice Sotomayor, uh, straining credulity, retorted that Asian Americans benefit from racial preferences in the higher education that, that nevertheless discriminate against them, but you know, okay. Uh, the third, and to me, most important novelty of SFFA, although I'm a little biased about this, uh, which has been overlooked in most of the early commentary about the case, is that it was the first time where the Supreme Court majority in any of these cases, and even or even having a really significant opinion in any affirmative action case, really questioned the coherence and so forth of the racial classifications that the court that the uh, universities use. Uh, in fact, Justice Chief Justice Roberts's opinion basically said that the classifications Asian American, White, Hispanic, uh, African American, uh, Native American are so incoherent that they can't possibly uh, satisfy the gov any gov any reasonable government interest, much less a compelling one. So the upshot uh, of SFFA is as follows. You want to use racial classifications in admissions and probably in other contexts. First, you have to show a compelling government interest. Diversity in higher education is too incohate, the court said, to be a compelling government interest. Even if you, even if you could show that there is a compelling government interest, you have to jump through a few more hoops. First, you need, well, you need to, the general concept is you need to show what they call narrow tailoring. What does narrow tailoring cons consist of? It consists of first that you have to show that you couldn't get the same results by doing something less dramatic with regard to race. That's not new. What is new, though, is that the court suggested that even if you have a compelling government interest, even if it's narrowly tailored in the sense there's no other way of getting uh, racial diversity, you have to have some sort of time limit. Oh, and by the way, and again, this goes back to my work, and uh, I think it's really very critical for the future, they said, and you can't just naively rely on the standard classifications. You actually have to show why you're classifying people this way and how that advances your compelling government interest. So this all means it's going to be very difficult for most entities to use racial classifications in the future to achieve their goals. <clears throat> so with that said, I want to explain why, in my view, that uh, the way affirmative action has developed over the decades uh, essentially sowed the seeds of its own destruction. So let's go back to the 1960s. Like I said, the main goal of affirmative action it was explicit at the time, it was not some kind of diversity, it was not to uh, bring people of color in general uh, into the mainstream. It was very specifically, we had Jim Crow, slavery, uh, racial violence, and so forth for centuries, and now we need to make sure that African Americans, now that we have civil rights laws, have opportunities that they were denied before. And for decades thereafter, that was the primary rationale for affirmative action. I don't care how much universities would talk about diversity and other incorporations and uh, other entities would talk about diversity and so forth. As a friend of mine who litigates uh, affirmative action cases said, it doesn't matter how the conversation would start when I have a debate with someone publicly, we always wound up at slavery. <laughs> and the problem is that even if you believe that that is a compelling interest, that we really need to make up for the historical exclusion of African Americans by giving them preferences now, that's not mostly what's going on with regard to affirmative action these days. So let's go back to 1970 now. Uh, the 1970 census showed that the United States was overwhelmingly a black and white country. About 83% of the population was white, about 12% was black, about 4% was what we now now called Hispanic, although no one called anyone that, it wasn't in the census at the time, uh, were people of Spanish-speaking origin, let's say, overwhelmingly Mexican-American, uh, and less than 1% combined was African-American or Asian-American. Uh, and uh, the Hispanic population had been historically considered to be a white population. Anyone wants to ask later why, why that, how that was, but nevertheless, that was the way it was. So basically, black-white country. So when um, affirmative action was starting, African Americans were always included, and then like a random selection of other groups were included haphazardly depending on the university. Some universities include Chicanos, 
or mixed race Mexican Americans. Some said Mexicans. Some said uh, Filipinos, which were the poorest ethnic group in California at one time, uh, and so on. And they just mixed and matched without any real coherence. Uh, then, in the mid 1970s, the federal government decided that we need to have some formal categories. We pretty much know who's black and who's white in the United States because of the racial divisions we've had over the centuries. But what about, for example, this emerging uh, Spanish-speaking or Spanish-origin population? There was one congressman in particular who was pushing for this. We need a classification for them. The problem is we're trying to enforce civil rights laws and track education, housing, other kinds of discrimination and progress. But there's no definition of who these people are. Uh, I, you know, I'm looking around the audience. Some of, some of you are old enough including me, to remember when the uh, criteria for being considered what we now call Hispanic was Spanish surname, which is a really stupid criteria because if you're married to someone, if you're a woman married to someone Hispanic, you might be named Lopez, but you might be Johansson. Uh, uh, and so anyway, a lot of other problems with that. Sometimes they said, uh, sometimes they used Spanish language household, which was only for like recent immigrants. Sometimes they used Chicano, which meant you were mixed race Mexicans. Sometimes they only used Mexicans. Sometimes they included Puerto Ricans. Sometimes they included include Cubans, sometimes they include all three and other Spanish speakers, and I counted 13 different ways. And you get the idea. The point was, how are we going to get good data if one agency is using one definition and another agency is using another definition? And this was true even with regard to the white population. We said, well, you know who's white and who's black, but when we look at the white population, should we be including some local minorities that have historically faced discrimination uh, in that region? So some agencies were looking at Cajuns in Louisiana or Portuguese in New England or Armenians in California. So let's get a commission together and regularize these classifications. Uh, and they did, except, you know, you might think, oh, they must have consulted an expert panel of, you know, sociologists, anthropologists, geneticists, uh, and, and other uh, historians to figure out what the right classifications would be. No. Uh, what they really did is they just sort of appointed little committees uh, that met in conference rooms and just came up with stuff kind of randomly. How randomly? How we wind up with the Hispanic classification? Well, this was an interagency commission that was overseen by the Office of Management and Budget, and they sent out like a memo saying, hey, we need three volunteers. We need one Cuban-American, one Mexican-American, and one Puerto Rican-American to represent the three major groups that are in the United States right now. They found three, they put them in a room together, and they came up with something, and there's some, you know, they debated about it, one wanted this group, one wanted to be called that. One was very, one, the Puerto Rican participant was very insistent that it all goes back to Spain and therefore we should call the, the classification Hispanic and it should mean that you have Spanish origin or culture. Why does that matter? Well, just for example, it means it includes Spaniards, people descended from Spanish uh, Ameri Americans, but does not include Brazilians because they are not descended from Spanish Americans. If we had used Latinos, it would have been the opposite. Uh, if we had used Chicanos, it would be a very narrow category. Uh, so, uh, and it was and this was not an obvious outcome. For example, Chicano groups had always said, you know, we are the oppressed, we're mixed race, but it was the white Spaniards who oppressed us. They rejected any idea we should go back to Spain, but they lost on that. And they eventually realized, well, maybe it's not such a bad idea to have some representation in Florida, New Jersey, and New York. So maybe uh, having a pan-Latino identity is not so bad. Nixon actually wanted this also uh, for his own scheming reasons, which I discuss in my book. Uh, I don't have time to get into that now. But anyway, it was very, it was very haphazard. But no one cared that much. Why did no one care that much? Uh, you go back, I mean, when I say no one cared that much, go back and look at the New York Times from this period. There's no discussion of this at all. No one cares. Why? First of all, again, the country's overwhelmingly black and white. So there are you know, very few marginal cases given the one sort of one droppy kind of rule that we had. Uh, and also, when the rules were published, it, they, they said very explicitly, OMB did, that these rules are only for statistical purposes. They're not supposed to be scientific. They're not supposed to be anthropological. And very specifically, they're not meant to be used for, uh, for, to uh, dictate eligibility for any federal program. Well, you know how these things go, uh, unanticipated consequences. They were immediately used uh, by everybody uh, for eligibility for federal, state, private affirmative action programs. Okay, well, 
still not such a problem when the country's overwhelmingly uh, black and white. But of course, since the 1978, when these rules went into formal effect, and by the way, the official classifications are race, African-American black, uh, white, Asian American and Pacific Islander, Pacific Islanders were later broken off because they were having too hard time getting into college if they were with the Asians. Uh, Native American, American Indian, uh, and one, eth- one and only one ethnic classification, Hispanic. If you're from any other ethnic group, uh, you don't exist, you're just white. Uh, so um, at the time, again, though, no one really cared that much, but since 1978, a couple things have happened. First thing that's happened is we've had very large-scale immigration from uh, Latin America, from Asia, and even from Africa and the Caribbean. So all of a sudden, rather than people who are descendants of American slaves who are black being the overwhelming uh, majority of people who are eligible for affirmative action, we wind up with uh, Hispanics being by far the largest group. Uh, and we all, you know, and among, for example, among 18-year-olds, 25% of 18-year-olds are Hispanic. And, 18, and 15% are African-Americans, so much more. And Asian-Americans were like 7 or 8%. And then a lot, there are a lot of Native Americans who suddenly discovered their Native American heritage. So that's one part of the issue. Uh, and then the second problem, uh, or not a problem, the second development was that we suddenly had well, not suddenly, we gradually had a, uh, overall, in the long term, dramatic increase in the level of interracial marriage. So you meet people all the time. Well, I have one Mexican grandparent and one Chinese grandparent, and where do they fit in? Well, in practice, they fit in wherever they, they check whichever box is going to be most useful for them under the circumstances. But the long and the short of it is that uh, the population has changed. So we wound up with two basic, I'm going to talk about at least two basic areas uh, of affirmative action, one of which is college admission. The other is uh, minority business enterprise programs, um, which get a lot less attention. Let me start with actually the MBE programs. So Congress decided in the late 60s, early 70s, we need to have a program to help small disadvantaged businesses. Uh, for a variety of reasons that I discuss briefly in my book, there are, there's a whole other book about this, the Small Business Administration other government agencies decided that when we say small disadvantaged business, we mean small and you almost can never prove you're disadvantaged unless you're a member of one of the official minority classifications, in which case you're presumptively disadvantaged. And I don't know that the presumption's ever been overcome unless you don't meet the general you know, uh, income criteria for these rules. So why is that? Uh, so, and these Again, this program, these programs were meant mostly to bring African Americans into the economic mainstream. Well, in 1978, that might have made sense. In 2023, uh, about half the population is already eligible uh, for these programs. If you add together people who are members of any of the minority groups, or even if they don't normally identify that way, if they're and they could check the box because they're Elizabeth Warren and they're you know, or whatever it is, um, and that's if people aren't cheating. Once you add the cheaters, it's more than that. So I tell my audiences that this is probably not uh, an audience filled with um, people who support racial classification preferences, but when I'm talking to more mixed audiences, I say, if you support uh, these kinds of MBE preferences, you're in trouble, because it's over 50% now. By the time my kids are my age, it's going to be 80 90% of the population will have some ancestry where they can check a box. If everyone gets a preference, no one's getting a preference. So it'll just go away on its own. Uh, in higher education, and by the way, while we always talk about how Asian Americans are discriminated against in college admissions, uh, there is nothing like that in MBE programs. If you are a member of any of the minority classifications, you are eligible for exactly the same preference as anyone else. It doesn't matter whether you're an Indian immigrant who got your MBA from Stanford now that you've become a citizen and started a defense contracting business, or whether you're uh, someone whose name is John Smith, but your uh, Mexican great-grandmother married uh, a Caucasian uh, back in Texas in 1890, and uh, you don't have any connection to Spanish culture whatsoever, but you do have a Mexican ancestor, or whether you're an African African American descendant of slaves who grew up uh, in rural Alabama uh, in poverty, you get exactly the same preference. So that's so that's 
MBE preferences. In higher education, of course, we have a hierarchy of preferences. As a rule, African Americans get the highest preference, uh, then Hispanics and Native Americans aren't that big a factor because they're still you know, one or two percent of the population, even with some exaggeration. Uh, and then whites and then Asian Americans either don't get a preference or face discrimination uh, in schools where they're quote unquote too overrepresented. Now, why is this a problem? Well, again, remember the original focus here was to uh, help African Americans who have been excluded for centuries. Well, uh, the rationale in universities is again, not in, unlike in MBE programs, which is an economic rationale, is to add diversity. And diversity is defined solely based by race. So over time, as we had more immigration and more intermarriage, what have universities done? They've overwhelmed, the elite universities have wildly disproportionately admitted first and second generation immigrants from Africa and Jamaica and other Caribbean countries and also people of mixed race who have enough African ancestry to check uh, the African American box. So for example, there's a story in the New York Times 20 years ago, so it's probably even more dramatic now, 67% or so uh, in a survey of the black students at Harvard were either uh, uh, mostly of first or second generation immigrant background or to a lesser extent had one non-black identified parent. And in the Ivy League in general, there's data that's over 40%. So they're not... You're not really, you're just sort of randomly helping immigrants. I always, I, I say this with a little bit tongue in cheek, but not really. Some of the people getting racial preferences that were originally intended for descendants of American slaves are not only not descendants of American slaves, they're from African countries where the, where the slaves came from, where people captured the slaves and sold them to the slavers. So you have the slavers, uh, descendants getting the, the preferences rather than the descendants of slaves. Then meanwhile, you have this weird situation where we talk about diversity, but then we take 60% of the world's population that is, comes within the Asian American classification, which goes everywhere from the western border of Pakistan all the way to the Philippines. People don't look alike, don't have the same culture, same food, same religion. Uh, no one's going to confuse like a Filipino with a Pakistani, uh, you know, uh, uh, in any way. Uh, but they're all in the same classification. And so, like the Fisher case, the last case the Supreme Court decided before SFFA, if you look at the data. University of Texas, which was defended there, had about 20% Asian American students, about 20% Hispanic students, and like 3 to 5% African American students. So the real action there was, are we going to give more slots to the Asians or more slots to the Hispanics? Now, why is this, I said, kind of odd? Because imagine you were a Hmong high school senior in Minnesota, where there's a large Hmong, Cambodian, and Laotian community, and you write, and you on your app, you're looking to go, you want to go to the University of Texas, you love the Longhorns, whatever, and you apply and you say, you know, I've talked to your Amer Asian American student group, I've looked at the last names in your student directory, I don't think you have a single Hmong student uh, in your entire school. I'd be the first one. I would add real diversity. I'm really into my identity, I'd be happy to like talk to other students about it. And on the other hand, that student is competing with a student who is the one, the 3,001st Mexican-American student who'd be admitted into that class. So what does the University of Texas say? You, Mr. Hamang, don't add any diversity because you're Asian, and Asian-Americans are, are already overrepresented. But you, Mr. Mexican-American, do add diversity because we have just defined more diversity as having more Hispanic students. Now, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever uh, if, if diversity is the uh, true rationale. So why am I bothering to tell you all this? Because all the other cases, Bakke, Fisher, Gruder, uh, upholding affirmative action were always five to four. It was always the most moderate establishment conservative justice who, at the end of the day, couldn't bring themselves to say enough of this. What's that? We'll put on some additional uh, criteria that you have to abide by, but we're not going to abolish this. Uh, and in fact, Justice Kennedy was the fifth vote in the second Fisher case, even though he had a fourth vote, it was four to three. Uh, he had never voted to uphold affirmative action ever before, but he still couldn't bring himself uh, in the end. And I think one reason for this is that affirmative action, whatever its practical impact, had this big symbolic uh, resonance. Like this is one thing where the, where our elite institutions are showing overtly they're trying to make up for historical discrimination in the US. And, we, and in the wake of the civil rights movement, we don't want to be the court that says we're taking away that. But so what, so 
maybe you might have expected Roberts or Kavanaugh, the most the more establishment type, more moderate, somewhat more moderate conservatives, to do the same thing in this case. You could have easily said, well, since Harvard and UNC didn't do what they were supposed to do to try to find non-classifying ways of adding to diversity, that will just say what they're doing is illegal, but not write really broad opinions. So why did they not do that? One reason might just be, well, they're just somewhat more conservative than O'Connor and Kennedy and Powell and Bakke, so they just weren't willing to. But I think there's something else going on, which is that it became pretty clear that by the time we get to SFFA, that this notion that what affirmative action is doing is really primarily helping descendants of slaves uh, integrate into the mainstream, which isn't true. It's very hard to get this data. The Wall Street Journal, after they interviewed me about my book, actually did a FOIA request to the Department of Transportation. They found that less than 20% of the total dollars that are going to MBE uh, minorities uh, are going to African Americans. And there's no way of distinguishing between immig- immigrants and, and first and the sense of slaves, so the, the sense of slaves is somewhat even smaller than that. We don't know exactly, maybe half, maybe two-thirds, who knows? It's a very small percentage. Uh, and in universities, again, Lots of preferences are going to children of Mexican billionaires who send their kids to high school here and then check off the, the Mexican-American box, or to African immigrants who never, uh, whose family never experienced Jim Crow or anything like that. And it's just kind of randomly giving preferences to post-1965 immigrants, all of whom have lived under a civil rights regime. Right? They didn't experience, I mean, every, people still experience discrimination, but you know, Italian-Americans or Polish-Americans or Irish-Americans back in the day experienced a lot, didn't have legal protection experienced a lot more discrimination than your average uh, Chinese-American immigrant in 1980 would have been experiencing. So... Uh, why do I make this assertion uh, that, that, that this really mattered to the court? Because, as I mentioned earlier, the court really did address this issue of the arbitrary nature of the classifications that are being used. And Chief Justice Roberts in particular uh, said that the classifications are imprecise in many ways. They're opaque. He quoted Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion, which criticized the classifications for relying on incoherent and irrational stereotypes. Roberts described the Hispanic classification, 25% of 18-year-olds, as arbitrary or undefined. He noted that the classifications were wildly over-inclusive and wildly under-inclusive, and that the Asian classification in particular took in people who have nothing in common. On a side point on that, if you act, this whole Asian thing just drives me nuts. If you look at go to any major university and look around and look at the quote-unquote Asian-American students, uh, you're, you will see a lot of Chinese-Americans and a lot of Indian-Americans. Uh, if you happen to be somewhere where there's a decently-sized Korean or Japanese-American population, they're also overrepresented, though they're relatively small population groups. Laotian-Americans, Filipino-Americans, uh, Vietnamese-Americans, Malaysian-Americans, a lot of other Asian-American subgroups are not especially overrepresented in higher education. Some are barely at elite institutions at all, like the Hamas. Uh, so this notion that you know Asian-Americans are overrepresented, not that I, I mean, I always put that in air quotes, because I don't want, it's your individual. What do you mean you're overrepresented because you belong to this group? But it's all based on this fallacy that Asian-Americans are, are just like one group and there's no distinctions among them, and it's kind of racist to, to say that. It's, it's, I don't know, it's a weird form of racism because under normal racist ideology, they're not even members of the same race. Like, you know, you know people from India are Caucasians, and people from East Asia are, are, are East Asians, and uh, Filipinos are anthropologically more closely related to Pacific Islanders, uh, like the Maori, than they are to East Asians. But for some reason, when they broke off the, East A- the Pacific Islander and Native Hawaiian category, they left the Philippines in the Asian American classification, even though Philippines is, are literally <laughs> Pacific Islands, and again, they're more anthropological logically related, ethnographically related to other Pacific Islanders. Anyway, uh, the classifications Robert concluded are so arbitrary that using them cannot be a narrowly tailored means to serve the university's asserted compelling interest in educational diversity. Using these classifications was therefore illegal. By the way, I should I have to add this. Um, it's not in my prepared remarks, but Justice Sotomayor objected to this, and she said, "What do you mean that you're not accepting these classifications? They were developed by experts, and everyone uses them. <laughs> so she needs to read my book because they were developed completely arbitrarily, specifically not to be used for things like affirmative action. Uh, but uh, maybe, um, but besides beyond that, uh, the, why does everyone use them? 
other than the fact that government, you know, besides the fact that the government has spread these throughout society, imagine you're a researcher and you need to do research on something. What do you do? You go to the Census data. Census Bureau uses these classifications also. So you have a choice. I can either create my own data bank, which will cost a fortune, or you just use the underlying classifications that are already there. So anyway, for the future, this aspect of Roberts' opinion means that any government program that uses the standard classifications to classify individuals and provide or withdraw benefits is now legally suspect. And this is not going to just affect affirmative action programs in higher education or in government contracting, assuming you could find some willing plaintiffs. Um, Garrett mentioned when he did research for me about biomedical research. I don't have time to get into that, but it's chapter six of my book. It's the single most outrageous thing that I discovered uh, in my research. Just very, very briefly, Congress said in the late 1990s, you need to make sure that all your biomedical studies have sufficient representation of minority, racial, and ethnic groups. Uh, the FDA and NIH could have brought expert panels together to figure out what does that mean in the context of medical research that would make some scientific sense. Instead, they just naively adopted these classifications that have no scientific basis for them whatsoever. What Hispanic, you could be Hispanic, you could be white, you could be black, you could be uh, indigenous, you could be Asian, you could be any combination of those. Like say you're American. What scientific value can that possibly have? But all the scientific studies now have to be based on this, on this stuff and it's just completely uh, insane. Anyway, uh, if I have more time, I'll talk about that uh, in more detail, but uh, now I'll let Gary ask me some questions and uh, uh, then take some questions I think from the audience right and then uh, I thank you for your attention so as David was um, saying as coming to the close of his remarks I found it astounding when you had me looking at those FDA notice and comment letters because the drug companies Pfizer and the like were being mandated to use standards for you know, getting these drugs through the drug trials that were utterly averse to the kind of scientific rigor and precision that they're used to uh, performing in things like cancer research and the like. And they were uh, having to operate almost on two tracks. It was the one track with the kind of precision using um, you know, genetics and the like, which would have established that there were a, a, a multitude of different um, you know, anthropological, ra racial categories that you know, could be um, you know, understood as anthropologically different. But yet, and this is where the research really um, you know, shocked me, you had interest groups that were saying, don't you dare do that to us. We have a vested interest in keeping these categories bright lines with, with bright line rules. And it made you think, oh my gosh, it's politics all the way down. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I, I can understand why the FDA and NIH did what they did. I mean, imagine this happened in 2002, 2003, ultimately the regulations were published. Imagine you're the head of the FDA or NIH under Bush or before that Clinton, and Congress has now said, you need to include race in all your studies. And it doesn't matter if the study is really a truly scientific study, like we're gonna see how this vaccine affects people, or a sociological study where some sort of classification may make sense, where you try to figure out why is it that African-American men smoke more than uh, other Groups, right? That might you know, that, that might have some sociological relevance, if not genetic. And you can say, well, we could convene an expert panel and bring, like I said, bring those sociologists and anthropologists and geneticists and so forth to Washington and create a National Academy of Sciences panel and let them tell us what race would mean in different contexts so we can satisfy Congress's mandate but do it in some kind of scientifically coherent way. Now, for those of you who are involved, I mean, I'm not really involved in politics, but I know enough about it. I mean, could you imagine you're the head of NIH and you announce you're going to come up with an expert panel to say what race means? Oh, what, oh, like you're just asking to be, to be, to be essentially uh, ma, you know, to be uh, tarred and feathered and run out of town because someone's going to object to it. So the easy thing to do politically is say we already have these things that the government says we're supposed to use. Let's just use those. But the stuff that Garrett looked at was fascinating. There were interest groups that were saying we want you to do this. The American Medical Association, which proved itself not to be a scientific body, which is not surprising. Oh yeah, this is a great idea. Every single actual scientific commentator, all big companies, small companies, researchers, every comment said this is nuts. This is gonna be expensive, it won't give us any useful data, and completely unscientific. And they were just ignored. 
Uh, and just to give you an example, you know, besides the, some cost, how does this hurt? Well, I think it does, at the time, I read something, if you read the scientific journals, people said, oh, but don't worry, because in 20 years, we'll be using genetics anyway. And you will just look at people's genome and figure it out. Well, we're not. Maybe they were too optimistic about that, but certainly there's a crowding out effect, right? You can't, there's so much money you have to do your research, and if you have to uh, make sure you have enough Hispanics in your study, you have that much less money to look at genes. But the other thing is, to give you a concrete example, the Moderna vaccine for COVID uh, was ready. They had studies done, ready to be approved, and the head of NIH, who ironically had written an article just a year or two earlier saying how race is nonsense and should be relevant in the scientific community, told them privately, this came out later, that if you don't get more members of minority groups in your study, I am not going to let your drug be approved. I'm going to go, be a vaccine. I'm going to go, I'm going to go public with it. Uh, did he give any scientific reason for this? Of course, there is no scientific reason. There's no reason why an mRNA vaccine would work differently on one group than the other. The best people come up with is they say, oh, well, people from minority groups wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't have confidence in the studies unless they were included. But I always say this is like a, a circular argument because why would anyone think it would have to make any difference? Because the government always reports things this way. I thought, like, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. Ashkenazi Jews, you know, ethnically, we have a lot of susceptibility to certain diseases or lack of susceptibility to other things because we was a genetic bottleneck like 60 years ago or whatever. So maybe I should be worried about that, but I'm not because no one tells me to be. I should be a lot more worried than someone who's Hispanic, but because, but uh, if anything, right? But no, but the government, but it's not the ethnic groups and racial groups that the government requires people to look at. It's not based on who scientifically might have actual different effects. It's just based on these nonsense categories that were developed for purely for statistical purposes. And, you know, the original purpose was mostly, like I said, to track discrimination. For tracking discrimination, they're not great, but they're not terrible, right? I mean, it's true that Hispanics come in all shapes and sizes and colors, but, you know, in the old days, if you see a resume that said Lopez or Rodriguez, uh, you probably, you probably just, when you were biased against Mexicans, you probably this person's probably Mexican because they're most people with those names in the U.S. are just got thrown away. So it didn't really matter the distinctions. But once you start getting into anything else, it really becomes completely absurd. How useful is the majority <coughs> opinion in Students for Fair Admission beyond the undergraduate uh, admissions context? I say that because there's already been a lawsuit filed against uh, NYU and its law review, um, which uh, right now has uh, a standing policy of um, uh, preferring um, racial minorities uh, to be admitted to the law review. Um, I suppose if they don't do a, a blind grading system like the George Mason Law Review did, oh. uh, so um, what are your thoughts on the applicability of students for fair admissions beyond that context? And also perhaps um, you know, to the context of what we were just discussing, um, doesn't, not even involving um, perhaps uh, you know, admi admissions. Well, again, this is my own ballywick, so maybe I'm too uh, more wedded to this than I should be. But I think one key thing is that any time you try to apply the opinion, the first thing, I was just talking to one of the lawyers for SFFA over lunch. And I said, you know, you, and they're doing some case against West Point. Uh, and what we're talking about it, and I said, why are you guys going after West Point? It's like, the, this is the one area, you know, the conservative justices don't, uh, don't respect Harvard anymore, but they do respect West Point. They might be more inclined to defer, and we talked about that for a while. I said, well, the good news is even if they wanted to defer to them on the compelling interest uh, issue, they still would have to explain why they're using Hispanic and black and Asian as their criteria, because the court says that those are incoherent. So they have to explain why they're coherent in the military academies if they're not coherent in the universities. So that's already a, a plus. Um, I think, you know, it, in things like law reviews, um, you, wouldn't be able, you won't be able to use race explicitly, but if you have a small enough law school class where everyone knows who, everyone, who, who all the applicants are, it'd be easy enough if you don't use objective standards to just cheat, right? Uh, and I think that's true in universities, too. I was just discussing this on some other panel, and we are talking about the fact that universities are clearly going to cheat. And the fact of the matter is it's going to be a lot easier to cheat at, say, Williams College or Amherst College where there's like 1,800 students, and you have a big admission staff, they can sort of subtly figure out who's who, and they can 
asked for these essays about, Robert says you can talk about your race in your essay, like you can talk about anything else that's affected your life. But I say University of Michigan, which has 10,000 students, it's undergraduate class, and mostly goes by GPA and uh, standardized test scores. How are they going, to, and assuming you're not allowed to have the admissions people look at race anymore, how are they going to even know how many people of each group they have? Harvard was keeping a daily log, how many students of each group to try to make sure they're not allowed to do that anymore. Harvard might still be able to get around that, but less resource-rich schools that don't have the admission staff to do this are going to have a problem. And also, even with the essay thing, there's a danger with the essay thing. The danger with the essays is that it's going to encourage Harvard to admit people who, for whom race is a big part of their psychology, like people who tend to be activists, and people's like, whatever, I'm black, but or Hispanic, but you know, I just want to be a student. Oh, uh, which, which I have to mention this, reminds me, one thing that hasn't got any attention, which I thought may have been the single most appalling thing in the entire Harvard record, or maybe second after the personality thing for Asians, is that if you didn't check a box, and Harvard thought they, they might want to admit you if you were a member of a minority group, they would stalk you, they would cyber-stalk you and try to figure out whether you were really black or Hispanic so they could admit you anyway. Uh, so imagine you are some very ethical black student who says, you know, I don't want to tell them I'm black, I want to see if I can get it on my own, so I'm not going to reveal my race. They will look you up, find your Facebook page, ah, he looks black, you can put him down. Uh, so you couldn't even opt out of the system, which I thought was uh, terribly outrageous. So anyway, it'll, the, the more a, uh, a, an entity is relying on objective tests for whatever it is, admissions or anything else, the more um, that they, it's a bigger institution where they won't, it's hard to track who's who, the more effect it will have. And the opposite uh, is also <laughs> true. In the MBE context, I don't see how these programs can survive at all because mm-hmm. all I did here, and I, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, if there are Sixth Circuit judges here, is a case pending in Ohio against the Small Business Administration with a district court, I'll say it anyway, with a district court, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not over at the bar right now, so I could uh, say whatever I want. I do anything. Um, the, I'm, not, I'm not involved in the case uh, where the Small Business Administration's long-standing preferences have been declared unconstitutional, and the SBA, last I heard, is trying to get the case, the case declared moot because you know, we're not going to ask about race anymore. We're going to ask about one's historical experience of oppression. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, you know, in the higher education context, the diversity rationale is at least understandable, even if it is just a smoke. Screen. But yes, it is interesting to meet different people in college with different experiences. It's not like the, the government contractors are sitting around at the, the coffee shop at 2 a.m. and discussing you know, their uh, politics or whatever. They're just, you know, so it's completely ridiculous. And we'll see if the judges let them get away with that. Well, I'm certain we'll come back to the students for fair admission decision. But we do want to uh, open things up for a question. I'm sure we'll, we'll have many. Is it fair to say that the decision on admissions which is relying on the 14th Amendment and parts of the Civil Rights Act that have to do with getting government money, has no implications whatsoever for enforcing Title VII of the Civil Rights Act against large employers that actually are quite open and they announce that they have race preference and affirmative action programs, which you say they're completely different there's no well, no, I, I, uh, oh, I think actually the opposite. That I, I don't think even before SFFA, there, it was not the. As far as I, I mean, there, there's a little bit of a lack of precedent. But as far as I read precedents, like the Ritchie case from a few years back, I think the only time you were allowed to use race in employment was part, as part of a bona fide, maybe even court approved, but it, but anyway, bona fide affirmative action plan that was narrowly tailored to address discrimination within your own company. You weren't allowed to just willy-nilly give out preferences. Uh, and the reason that these things still exist is that no one wants to be a plaintiff uh, in one of these cases. It's hard to get people to sue in general, even when people have faced overt discrimination as a member of a minority group. Who wants to bother suing if you've been denied a job? Why? Because you'll just go, you'll get another job, right? There are a lot of jobs out there, and the effort and all that. And then, if you're suing against affirmative action, you can get blackballed entirely uh, for being that person. So that's part of, by, 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 by part of the cleverness of SFFA. They started, instead of requiring individual students to sue and then being pilloried, they made a membership organization where you don't have to reveal the individual members' identities. So if, 
if such a case with private employers ever did get to the Supreme Court, would you say, oh, it's just a slam dunk? Oh yeah, I mean, in fact, in fact, there were several several law firms that had these minority only summer programs that they had for years, and no one bothered bought the suit, and and SFA went after them. Uh, I think it was I think I think it was them. Uh, and if you look at the press releases, oh, we're going to fight this. We believe that they folded. Now, uh, they folded, they're probably going to replace them with, we want to see it demonstrate commitment to a diversity or a history of overcoming barriers. And it wouldn't be at all surprising if the uh, demographics of the next class look more or less the same, and they're cheating, but, uh, they're, but, but whether it's illegal or not, it's clearly, it was clearly illegal this whole time. Although, David, there is that wonderful um, quote that uh, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts um, was citing from a 19th century case, the Constitution doesn't work in shadows. That which you may not do directly, you may not do indirectly, which sounded like it was cribbing from Joseph Story's commentary. Story, yeah, but uh, how far will we extend that uh, 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 principle? Well, look, um, you know, uh, I'm not saying that two situations are, more, are morally com- uh, the same or anything. Just to give a historic analogy, even after the Supreme Court made extremely clear that you couldn't have segregation in various public places. It took a long time, uh, a lot of litigation. Most importantly, it took the Justice Department. Private parties did not have the resources, even though they were all slammed on cases, right? You couldn't have Private parties did not have the resources to go you know, school district by school district throughout the entire South to make them desegregate. And it was a combination of the Justice Department and Congress saying, we're going to take away your federal funding uh, if you don't uh, listen to uh, Brown and actually did it. So, you know, I wouldn't expect overnight or maybe ever for this to completely go away, but I would expect uh, it to, to be a lot less overt, and at least in some contexts, just become so blatantly elite, you know, there's no other way of doing it other than being overt, so like in the MBE context. Mm-hmm. I don't think the courts are gonna buy that we're gonna have each uh, SBA applicant write a history of their own, their own uh, experiences with oppression, and that will, that will be a race-neutral way of, of doing this. That does seem like, it seemed clearly like, uh, uh, exactly what you said, doing the shadows. Of course, it's easier when there's one a government agency doing it against thousands of people to get that one case. You have 250 selective universities in the country, plus all their graduate programs, law schools, medical schools. It's going to be tough to weed it out. We have David Forte. David, I want to tell you that I'm wearing my Harvard tie today. <laughs> let's, let's have a public burning. <laughs> it, it has no political context. I'm wearing it because my wife said it goes better with my shirt. <laughs> um, Just be careful. They might start stalking you. Yeah. Uh, you sound a little more optimistic than I'm used to from you. But anyway, um, uh, um, uh, what's been left out of the re- in our discussion, not that you've intentionally left it out, is the reasons why universities will still cheat. And I think the reason is political, not racial. That, that race has become the Marxist equivalent of the lower class. It's been planned for a long time. We know the history from the Frankfurt School on. And, uh, and essentially, it doesn't matter whether you're a mixed race. It doesn't matter about what the difficulty is about drawing lines. You're just not part of the white suppression, suppressive class. And that's what we want to build into the, co- into the psyche of everyone coming to college. That's what I think is driving it. I don't know if you agree. I, I actually partially agree. I, th- there's two groups of universities that are dedicated to that. One is the group that you mentioned, and the other are just like the go-along to get-along people. Like, you know, you're never going to find any real courage in a university president or, or dean, because those kind of people nowadays don't go into these things. They're people who just want to get ahead in the career. Look, so especially the elite universities, why does Harvard care so much about this stuff? I think it's in part what you said, but it's also in part, you know, we are, you know, to use a phrase from my friends and enemies on the left, 
Uh, we, what is Harvard in the business of? Largely reproducing hierarchy, right? We take kids from the upper middle class and upper class and we give them the tools, the, the cultural tools and the diploma to stay in the upper middle class and upper class. And this is something that's not very egalitarian, not in, that doesn't really, you know, it was fine in the old days when the Protestant establishment was running things. They were very overt about it. We're a Protestant establishment and we want to keep the Protestant establishment running things and therefore we take all the kids from the prep schools. Now you can't say that we want to do something like that. So you could do one of two things. You could actually find a way of making your schools much more egalitarian in a variety of ways. You could devote some of your resources to helping, you know, to figuring out how to help talented public school kids in uh, Dubuque uh, get, get to the level where they get to Harvard uh, with the resources they don't have. Or you could just say, we're going to make sure that our view book that we send out uh, every year looks like the United Colors of Benetton. Uh, for those who are uh, old enough to remember that, it doesn't really matter whether the kids are from Africa or from Alabama. Uh, we just show that we are diverse and therefore we're with the program and therefore the left, which would otherwise be our nemesis, won't attack us. I was going to say, of the safari, you say nothing. Oh, yes, you did. Have I have, yeah. And you did have something about an interesting connection with Sephardi and what uh, the Somalis or something, right? Something like that. But anyway, let me, let me get on. The, uh, David, it's, it's really by the end of the first uh, chapter, it was, it was clear and it just runs through. This thing is wholly incoherent. It's just wholly incoherent in the film. You make the case. Yeah, what's striking is that we really have become a racist, even if not a racist society, a racialist society. That we've been told at every point to keep thinking of ourselves when, when we're applying to schools and when we're uh, looking for government contracts, except there was one interesting item toward the end of your book when you mentioned an interesting study of engaging people who call themselves Native Americans when they entered law school and by the time they left. You find 10 times as many people would report themselves as Native Americans when they entered than when they left. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What a terrible attrition rate. Look at what we've got. Well, how So it's, it's your sense that maybe people have not absorbed this thing, they just just take it as a joke and just, just throw it over? So I think uh, we have a mixed bag here. I mean, despite the fact that government has been pushing on us this Asian American classification for uh, 40 plus years, most people we call Asian American don't accept that, even as a secondary identity, except when you're in elite institutions. Like, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't know anyone who is not in, either in college or whatever, or an academic who, who is of Asian descent, who if you ask them what their ethnicity is, let's say, oh, I'm an Asian American. Yeah, they're, like, that's weird. But no one says, oh, I'm a, I'm a European American, you know, you're Polish or Chinese. They say, I'm Korean, I'm Chinese, whatever. So it hasn't been fully successful, though, when people ask me, you know, what led me to write this book? There are a whole series of things over the years that got me interested, one of which was this article in the New York Times like 20 years ago about how uh, you know, people come go into Columbia University as Koreans and Chinese and come out as Asian Americans because they're sort of told by all the professors that you have an Asian American identity. And it was bizarre that we want to make people more racial, right? Uh, so, there's, so, so I do think that, um, that it hasn't been wholly successful, but it has been, you know, uh, somewhat successful. What I say on this issue is that I think at the grassroots level, it's truly remarkable how things have changed since I was a kid. Uh, like it would be, it would have been odd when I was a kid, even in New York City, very cosmopolitan place, to see interracial couples. Like you would, you were like, you know, just so it was so sufficiently unusual that if you were attuned to that, you would notice. Now, and, and by the way, the. When Gallup first asked in 1958, how, what, you know, first asked the question, do you approve or disapprove of interracial marriage? 4% approved. Wow. Not 14, 4, not 40, 4. Mm -hmm. uh, that was like 94%. It didn't become a majority until the early 1990s. Uh, but now you go anywhere, and, I, and you know, I'll say it was a very enlightening uh, thing for me even. When my book came out, I had this publicist who got me all, on, all, on different like local radio shows, podcasts, and you know some of them were pretty mainstream, but some of them were kind of out there. You know, guys with like these long beards and wearing <laughs> hunting clothes with a rifle back them and had their little podcast. Uh, the kind of people you would stereotypically think of as potentially racist, right? And 
all everybody like only if I you know, if I had five minute conversation with my not sister, but anyone I had a long conversation with would always say, you know, uh, my sister in law is from Kenya, or I or or my wife is uh, Mexican. I mean, so even in like sort of rural uh, rural right wing circles, white circles in the U.S., everyone has friends, relatives that they could tell that that that, that are a part of their family and they accept them. Not every, I mean, not every single, but everyone I spoke to uh, would talk about it, right? And this is a, a, a very big difference. So at the grassroots level, I think that American society, just like in, in the 1950s, uh, people would really care, maybe if you're Polish or Italian, no one cares anymore. That's what, where we are going uh, at the grassroots level in race, and it's being inhibited by the fact that in the elite institutions, government, universities, um, and so forth, uh, that um, big corporations, that they are wedded to these classifications. And it's, the, it's not at the grassroots level where there's segregation, it's the universities are having their separate minority orientations, and their separate minority dorms, and separate minority admissions. And the most shocking one to me, and I guess I'm the only one who even notices, no one else complained, at my 25th college reunion, I didn't go to it, but I got the program, and they had, at the same time, so you couldn't go to both, a separate minority memorial service. So, uh, just uh, and a separate like general. So wait, so I so I couldn't have had any non-white friends in college. They couldn't have had any white friends that they wanted to mourn. Of course, they were they were, they were. But I mean, so this is where. So I so I think this is really a, a, a battle between the grassroots remark, a remarkable change in American culture, shifting towards a either non-racial or multiracial American identity, and the elite saying, no, no, we like having these separations. I could go the idea. Some some just it for the big companies because it's convenient, and for the left, it's an ideological thing. Uh, I, I can elaborate on that, but I want to give time for another question. Judge, whatever happened to Sandra Day O'Connor's prediction that we needed to do this for 25 years? <laughs> that was that was yeah. You know, I never took that seriously. It was a dodge in her part, and she later wrote co-wrote an article with the former clerk saying, oh yeah, I didn't really mean that. Uh, I, I, that was just sort of, it was sort of an expectation, not a deadline. Uh, but that was one of the, you know, so can't say everything in your talk, but that was another problem that the plaintiffs had here when the, you know, that um, O'Connor had said there was some de- uh, 25 years or deadline. Even if it's not a deadline, uh, if it's, if you want narrow tailoring, it's, uh, even if you accept the compelling interest, you want to have some sort of endpoint. And the problem with the diversity rationale is you can always say we need more diversity. There's no endpoint that you could possibly have. It's one thing you could say if you had stuck, if the court and therefore universities had stuck to some sort of uh, reparative uh, rationale, they could say when X percent of African American students were able to get in on their own without, uh, then we'll know we've we've reached the minimum level. But once it's diversity, there's never a stopping point. And when they were asked, I I think it was Harvard's Council, but I'm not sure. So one of the justices said, "What's the endpoint?" And they said, "We we declined to identify any endpoint." So <laughs> we have time for one more question in the back. Uh, yes, I I was wondering whether you had done any research on discrimination against um, ideological viewpoint conservatives. Um, for instance, um, you know, I've experienced I'm wondering, for, for instance, in, in, in uh, admitting uh, minority students, is there is there any discrimination against conservative minorities versus liberal minorities? That's interesting. Um, I mean, as, I think as far as Harvard and so forth are concerned with their stats. They're happy to get whoever, uh, as long as they meet their informal targets. Uh, but certainly, I would expect that uh, in practice, you know, the admissions offices of these places are all composed of l- former students at the universities themselves who are overwhelmingly on the left and have all the cultural and other suppositions. So I would predict that uh, if you wrote your essay, if you're an African-American applicant, with how Clarence Thomas is your hero, you'd be significantly less likely to get in than if you wrote about how Barack Obama uh, was your hero. And I will tell you, as much as the universities talk about diversity of 
ideas and all that. So my daughter, I just went through this. I could, I could give a whole rant about the college admissions process. My daughter is a freshman at Johns Hopkins. So we went through this, and we went through it pretty successfully. But what a mess it is. And one thing that's a mess is that I thought the, most, the single most outstanding thing on her application that distinguished, you know, Distinguished her. You know, she had great grades and all that. But what distinguished her? During COVID, she was an anti-school closure activist, and she was she gave public speeches. She was on TV. She was on the radio. She was on podcast. And she was in tenth grade. Most fifteen-year-olds aren't doing that, right? And uh, I did not. I, I refused to hire an admissions consultant because I thought that was ridiculous. But what actually wound up happening was that um, some admissions consulting company, the president emailed me and said, I'm president of this admissions consulting company. I would like to do an interview with you about what, will, what the effect of SFFA is likely to be on admissions. And I will pay you for your time. I was like, well, that's taxable. Instead of paying me for my time, uh, let's barter. Uh, and uh, how about you look over my daughter's application and her main essay? And, you know, look, I'm a law school professor. I went to an elite college, elite law school. You think I have some idea of what I'm doing, right? But he went through and he made some subtle, relatively subtle changes, which made, definitely made it better once I saw them. But he, one of the changes he made, though, he said, take the school closure thing. Wow. Put it much, don't get rid of it, put it much lower in your essay and portray it not like you were against closure, but say something like, uh, I was um, an activist uh, advocating for the, um, advocating for disadvantaged students who are being harmed uh, by school closures. Uh, and also that uh, the other really outstanding thing she had in her resume was that she worked at the Cato Institute as an intern for six weeks, which it's very hard to get those internships, and she really loved that and really helped shape what she wants to do. And it's like, yeah, you can make, put that you know, number eight. Um, so, look, I'm not. Uh, so I'm not sitting in the room, but this is someone who is. He's he runs the business. He knows what to tell people, and he tells you to downplay or uh, change things that, that will look more like not left wing, basically, and everything. Wow. So I'm sure it's at least that bad if you're a member of a minority group, and probably worse. So David and I are going to just quickly exit and get ourselves set up for book signing. Um, but to close us out, uh, before we head off to reception, we have our managing director, Michael Maybach. But let's please give David a round of applause. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.